Welcome to How I Lawyer, a podcast where I talk to attorneys from throughout the profession about what they do, why they do it, and how they do it well. I'm your host, Jonah Perlin, a law professor in Washington, D.C. This episode is sponsored, edited, and engineered by my friends at Law Pods. Law Pods is a professional podcast production company focused solely on attorney podcasting. I absolutely love working with them, and if you're considering becoming a legal podcaster or just want to learn more, check them out at lawpods.com. And now, let's get started. Hello, and welcome back. In today's episode, I speak with Jay Harrington, who's an expert in professional development, business planning, and marketing for lawyers. In addition to running his legal marketing and PR agency for the past 16 years, he's the author of The Productivity Pivot, The Essential Associate, and One of a Kind, where he teaches lawyers how to develop their business, manage their time, and stand out both in their firm and in the legal world more broadly. I first learned about Jay through his wonderful LinkedIn profile, where he posts thought-provoking but not cookie-cutter, and that's a tough line to walk, which we'll talk about, thoughts on the practice of law and the profession daily to his more than 13,000 followers. Honestly, I hope you listen to the interview, but if you do one thing today, go follow Jay on LinkedIn. He started his legal career at the law firm Skadden Arps and also worked at Foley Lardner and at his own boutique law firm in Detroit. He's a graduate of Bowling Green State University, Go Falcons, and the University of Michigan School of Law, Go Wolverines. Welcome to the podcast, Jay. Thanks, Jonah. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad we got to do this. So Look, I'm a big fan. As I said before we started recording, I'm kind of a, a fanboy from afar of your books and your LinkedIn posts. But I was hoping we could start by just discussing a little bit about your personal path, deciding to go to law school, and then sort of your early career before you started doing what you're doing now. Sure. So I'll give you the unvarnished truth, which I think a lot of people can probably relate to, which is I went to law school because it seemed like the least worst option at that point in time. Right. It was mostly because I went to undergrad. I mostly went because I, you know, I wanted to play baseball in college, which I did. I became a journalism major. Um, again, not no real, you know, people ask me why I did certain things I did, and I don't have a good answer for them. Um, and I'm not going to make a, up a story now. Right. It just seemed like something fairly easy. I think I was always, you know, at least writing was something that came easy to me. Then I found out how little journalists make when they graduate from college. Fair. So hence law school. So any event. I did well enough in law school, um, you know, fortunate to go to a, a pretty good school. And I was really lucky to, you know, be graduating at a time where like the tech boom was just raging. So mm -hmm. um, I, had a, I had a much different experience than I know a lot of people in the sense that, you know, came out with a really strong job market. The probably the most interesting thing about my law school experience and sort of that transition to getting my first job was that I, I was a summer associate at Skadden in Chicago. Um, again, that summer of like, or the fall of 1998 was just, you know, you could, you basically, if you had, if you had a pulse and you were at a school, like <laughs> in, in, at a certain, you know, a certain type of school, you could get a, whatever job you wanted. Sure. And so I went there, summered, um, everyone told me, you know, you just got to sort of indicate your preference for practice area. Everyone at the Chicago Skadden office gets their practice area preference. And so I wanted to be an M&A lawyer. Again, not quite sure why, but it sounded cool. But that's what you had told yourself that you wanted to be an M&A lawyer. Exactly. And then fast forward a year, my starting date as a first year was supposed to be, or was, uh, September 17th, 2001, which was six days after 9-11 terrorist attacks. So a couple of days after that, I got a call and they said, you're now a corporate bankruptcy lawyer. Right. Um, so so that's, that's how I got into that. And, um, and we, we can talk about that a little bit if we talk about, you know, sort of early years of practice of law, but that's kind of how my path um, proceeded in the, in the early stages. 
Sure. Yeah. It's, you know, it's interesting because now that I'm on the other end and I have this, I have students coming every single year, you start to see different markets and you start to see the same things playing out again and again. And I graduated law school right after the financial crisis. Hmm. And shockingly enough, a lot of people ended up doing corporate bankruptcy as a result, but we're living in a very different market right now. I mean, you know, you have the pandemic still going on, but you also just have this booming, booming legal industry the firms can't keep people fast enough. And so maybe the message for students and young lawyers is just keep an eye on the market because it might change any day, right? Yeah, absolutely. I've been I've been kind of talking to people and spreading that message as well because it can and it will. I mean, I think mm-hmm. it's a thing that people need to understand. Um, it's one of the things that scares me about, you know, some of the aspects of of jumping. I mean, I'm all for people trying to find the right gig that works for them. The danger with all of the money being dangled, um, things like six-figure signing bonuses and the crazy stuff you hear is, you know, you're not just going after something new, you're like you're leaving something behind. And that something you're leaving behind might be over the long term much more valuable. You know, those those fully developed relationships, the the goodwill, the career capital, I think, is is Cal Newport, one of your Georgetown mm-hmm. uh, colleagues calls it. Um, you know, all of these things are are really important over the long term. And I think there's a the, the concept is called hyperbolic discounting. It's the tendency we have to overvalue short-term rewards over longer-term ones, even if the long-term ones are more are larger and more valuable. Mm. And I feel like you're starting to see that. Now, if you have a short-term mindset about your career, that's great. Like, go for the money. I say all for that. But if not, you know, think, think twice about what you're giving up, not just what you're going towards. Hmm. Yeah, I didn't have as fancy a term for it. I always think of it as kind of the grass is greener, right, approach that the devil you know sometimes is better than the devil you don't. Totally. At the same time, as you say, you know, people should should move when they want to move, but they shouldn't discount the fact that um, they do lose something in that process. If they gain more, they think they're going to gain more. Great. But you're absolutely right. It's easier to see the things you're going to gain maybe than the things you might lose. Yep. Tell me a little bit about sort of your experience uh, as a young lawyer what were some of the surprises or some of the things that sort of still stick out now that you work more on the consulting advising business side of things? Yeah. So let's see. One thing that was really stand out was I, you know, in the, at the time when I started, I mean, I can relate to a lot of what the people are going through these days, minus the remote environment aspect sure. to it, right? It was an interesting time to start practicing law. It was sort of right when I started is when people started getting their, their first BlackBerry devices, hmm. you know? And that was a big moment in time in retrospect. And, and frankly, you know, one that seemed cool at the time. But when you look back, you think, well, that that was the source of a lot of the problems, you know, that we have now right. where you start to become it was sold as something that allows you to be, you know, have more flexibility. But of course, it, it ties you and tethers you more to your job um, once you have that device. I still remember waking up in the middle of the night and seeing that blinking red flashing light on the BlackBerry and knowing right. that there was some some email <laughs> coming in for me. So that was that was big. And then also just how busy it was, you know, after 9-11 at a big firm like Skadden, where you had a lot of corporate clients and people were really uncertain about the economy and just how busy that first few months of, of the practice of law was and how just unmoored I felt, you know, just having never taken a bankruptcy class in law school, not that that necessarily would have prepared you anyway, but not knowing any of the terminology, just being thrown into this um, experience which in retrospect was kind of amazing, right? Because having gotten through it, then I felt like, oh my God, I can get through anything. Right. Um, so I think there is that, you know, again, there's a flip side to every challenge. Um, you know, it feels really tough in the moment, but you do learn something from it. You know, classic 
growth mindset, I guess. But that was that was really meaningful. And then another lesson I learned, I really ended up liking my experience at SCAD. And despite it being a really tough um, environment to start in, just because it was so much work, that was a big thing. But sure, demonstrated to me a couple things. One is if you start off on the right foot and, and you don't need to do anything amazing, you just need to kind of do what you say you're going to do and do it on time and like communicate if you don't, you, you can take on a lot of responsibility really quickly, you know, in most law firms. People are looking for you to take ownership. And if you can do some of the simple simple things uh, well, you're going you're gonna to do really well for yourself and establish a good reputation. And then the other one, this is sort of cliche, but it, it was totally bared out for me in terms of my experience, which was who you work with is so much more important than where you work. Absolutely. The people it, that you're working with and that you're in the trenches with in, a day, in the day-to-day experience of the practice of law is just so critical. And I worked with some really amazing people. And because, you know, I think I I worked hard and I, I did a good enough job. Those people, you know, there's certain people wanted me on their team too, right? So it sort of sort of works both ways. Right. And so it's just so important. You don't want to get lost. You don't want to be perceived as someone who's like dropping the ball. If you don't do those things and you don't like make those critical mistakes, then, you know, you can get hooked up with a good team and, and the practice of law can be a lot more enjoyable as a result of that. Absolutely. It's sort of like when you're taking a class and people say, well, I'm taking this class or the class title. And I often say, you know, the class title doesn't matter as much as the professor teaching it. I think it's the same thing with the team you're working for. You can be doing something that to the outside sounds really, really boring. But if everybody you're working with is committed to the same goal and, you know, you're all working hard, you're all working hard hours. I started my career in the same sort of environment it can be the difference between the best job in the world and the worst job in the world. No question in my experience. I think that's an important point. For those that don't know who might be listening, who aren't familiar with Blackberries, that was the uh, precursor to the iPhone. Then they did have those red blinking lights um, to tell you that an email was coming in. So Jay, then you go on and you decide to sort of make a pivot, if you don't mind me using that word, mm-hmm. into sort of this business and marketing kind of role. Talk to me about your shift away from sort of the practice to more uh, helping other people uh, in their practice. Yeah. So um, one thing to mention, uh, so there is this, you know, in the, in the chronology, I did, I left, let's say I went from, you know, one big law firm to another, and then I left and then I started this business. Um, I just, I don't know, at that point, wanted to do something as I perceived it more entre- entrepreneurial and was ready for a bit of a change of pace. You know, during that period of time, a couple of years after starting this business that I still have today is when I, I started my own small law firm. So there's some overlap there. But the reason for it was really, you know, my wife and I didn't have any kids at the time. I was ready for just some sort of change. I didn't know it was going to be a permanent one. And I decided um, my wife had, at that point had already started a business and we and I joined her and and we made a run of it. And the reason why and, and, and in those early stages of what became, you know, the marketing agency and consultancy that I have today we really were just like a generalist, you know, marketing creative services agency that was serving pretty much everyone, right? Sort cool. of that generalist approach. It wasn't the law, law legal industry that we were really serving, um, although we had a couple clients in that space. But my motivation to leave was just a little bit burned out, I would say, and not having a ton of financial responsibilities that required me to stay uh, working at a law firm. I decided it was, it was time for a little bit of a change. Yeah. No, it's it's a real privilege to be able to do that. Not everybody can. Not everybody mm-hmm. can at every day. And that's important to remember for those of us who are, whether we like it or not, sometimes in the advice business, 
but I think it's great that you started something with your wife. That sounds fantastic. I'm curious how that worked. Uh, but also, <laughs> how did you go from more generalist to at least what you've been writing about a lot now, which is sort of specifically in the legal market? Yeah. So one of the reasons I think we were more generalist at the time was that it through my big law experience, I, I definitely was not an expert. I wouldn't call myself at all. And I hesitate to use that term you know, today, but sure. I, I know a lot more now than I did then about how the legal industry operates and how you develop a book of business and and build a build a firm and all of those kinds of things and that that experience you know didn't come from my time in big law necessarily it really came after i i started my own law firm and and ran mm-hmm. that for several years and that was right in the midst probably right around the time you were graduating from law school but we start my partner and i started our law firm in 2009 because I was a corporate bankruptcy lawyer, because not only the financial crisis was going on, but in Detroit, which is where I was at the time, the automotive crisis, Mm. GM and Chrysler filed for bankruptcy. Right. So we saw, you know, I said to myself, if I'm ever going to practice law again, like now is the moment. Mm. And so hung a shingle, had a crazy three-year run, uh, so busy, at the same time, still running the marketing agency as well. So sort of had two businesses going on. And that's where I learned everything, right? Um, mm. I decided basically, I, I thought maybe I should go back and get a job um, at a law firm. Like I could do that. I'm a bankruptcy lawyer. I've got a lot of experience in this area. And then, you know, I thought about it and I said to myself, you know, I've been through that. I understand as it is now that it's hard to practice law. You know, it's not an easy job. It's a hard job. And I always thought that having developing clients and maintaining client relationships was was really hard. But then I guess I thought and I said, you know, what's even harder is helping someone else manage hmm. their client relationship. So I said, let me just go hang a shingle and see how this goes. That's awesome. Yeah. And yeah. what I what I don't want to sort of step on for for anybody listening is that, you know, you keep adding all of these experiences, right? Some of them planned, some of them unplanned, like the corporate mm-hmm. bankruptcy experience, unplanned. The fact that you were living in Detroit, which just happened to become kind of randomly, for lack of a better word, right? This this hotbed at a certain mm-hmm. time in a certain place. And you just keep building these experiences. You know, I think I've talked about it on the podcast before, but I, uh, this guy I follow on Twitter named David Perel talks about like finding your personal monopoly. Mm. What is the one thing that you can do better than anybody else based on your life experience and where you happen to be at the right time. And sometimes that's the best thing you can do because nobody else can do that exact set of skills in that exact way. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that you do, you sort of construct a narrative around it after the fact, but it's mostly just like Hmm. making decisions and like just saying, all right, whatever, like if this, and I, you know, we've talked a lot about the stuff that's worked. We haven't talked about the stuff that hasn't all that much, but, um, yeah, enough, you know, you just, you sort of stumble your way through it and and things do tend to work out, you know, if you're generally thoughtful about it. I mean, back to that point of having the ability to do something. I mean, that was that was definitely a strategic decision on my part early on in my career, which was, all right, I've got, you know, I've got a hefty amount of law school debt. Like I'm just going to work hard to to get get rid of this and not not have the proverbial golden handcuffs right. so that I can I think it's um Derek Sivers, who, you know, you'll see on Twitter and stuff. I mean, I think he, I heard him say one time, um, you know, the best, the best decision uh, or the best option is the one that gives you more options. And I always Hmm. kind of live by that, right? Where it's like, don't put yourself in a box and give yourself the ability to navigate 
out of whatever situation you're in. Don't don't make an unforced error. Obviously, sometimes that's not possible, but like sure. if you can um, you know, leave yourself flexibility, do it. And that's part of why, like, you know, the ability to to just kind of try certain things um has been possible for me. Hmm. Yeah. And you know, I want to talk a little bit about that sort of advice to people building, building a book of business. Um, you mm-hmm. know, some people might be listening and saying, I'm already an expert at this. That's great. You can always learn more, but I think this is a huge challenge and it's a completely new sort of world and it reinvents itself. Maybe it comes around, but it reinvents itself pretty frequently. And one of the things I noticed in some of the things you write is you talk about one of the things that helps you build that business is by finding your niche and your area mm-hmm. of expertise. And I, and I sense there might be a tension with what you just said, which is sort of keep all your options open. So maybe talk to me a little bit about about your view of sort of how to make you make yourself stand out in today's uh, legal business market. Yeah, so I do think a lot of it comes down to you know making a strategic decision about not being all things to all people. In other words, you know having a niche. Um, I do think that most good strategy is not necessarily about figuring out things to do, but figuring out what not to do. Um, hmm. And and that's what having a niche is all about. I mean, I think this is particularly important for someone who, you know, is at earlier stages in their career and is trying to figure out like, all right, where do I fit in? How do I fit in? And I think narrowing one's lens as to what your addressable market is, is, is really important in that, in that regard. The way I approached it was, was the following. Like if I was to think back and say, all right, when I started a firm, like I literally had no clients. We had made a bet that Okay, you know, most of the large firms in Detroit serve either GM or Chrysler in some capacity, products liability work, contract work, whatever. So they're going to be conflicted out of a lot of the work for their suppliers who are going to have claims in the bankruptcy. So we thought we'd get conflict work, all of that, but we didn't have any clients, literally zero, hmm. when, we, when we kind of decided to do this. I had been out of the practice of law for two and a half years. So we were kind of counting on a certain number of like just relationships, people sending us work, but that's not, I didn't want to have to totally count on that. So the way I looked out at the market was to say, all right, you know, sort of a, a Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger approach to, you know, to investing, like what are the underserved markets? Like what are the underappreciated investments, so to speak? And in the automotive world, you know, everyone was targeting work from like the tier one, large, you know, publicly traded auto suppliers. That's where all the money was. And what, what I figured was, well, let's look way down um, or, you know, the opposite end of the, of the supply chain. Hmm. And what about the automotive dealers, right? Nobody's paying attention to these guys. They're scrappy entrepreneurs. Like there's so much work that, you know, they're not, no one's paying attention to them. So what I did was to say, all right, that's my niche. That's what I'm going to target because no one else is looking at that space. Hmm. And so I called up the Michigan Auto Dealers Association, the Detroit Auto Dealers Association, um, said, hey, this bankruptcy could be big trouble for your dealers. GM and Chrysler are probably going to reject a bunch of dealer contracts and the bankruptcy is like, are, you, are they ready? Are you guys on top of this? And they're like, you want to come speak? You know, you want to write articles? <laughs> To the point where, you know, I got hired by the associations and they set up a 1-800 number where dealers started calling my office and then what happened? Then they're like, we need a lawyer. Can you help us? So in any event, that was a special circumstance. But the underlying principle remains that never would have been the case. I never would have been able to immerse myself. I call it the ecosystem of attention, you know, of an audience like that, speak their language, be seen as the choice that they could make, the, the specialist who was focusing on that particular set of businesses and no one else was looking at it. And we, we got hired 
by, I don't remember the exact number, but say 20 dealerships in those bankruptcies. It was a ton of work. And then, you know, going back to this notion of creating serendipity for yourself, like all my clients got wiped out in the bankruptcies because every dealer that whose contract was rejected got wiped out. But then because dealers are the best like citizens of every, you know, small community in, in the United States, they're very, they know everybody and they're, they have a lot of political clout and they got Congress to pass this arbitration bill hmm. that allowed them to go back and arbitrate the decision that happened. So I got hired, you know, so it was a year, it was years worth of work based on one decision to get narrow hmm. and to be really specialized for a target market rather than trying to be seen as like one of many serving everybody, you know, saying, oh, I can do anything for everyone or any, anything for anyone in this market, um, which I could. But that wouldn't have made me stand out to anyone. And I wouldn't mm. have got, we wouldn't have gotten nearly as much work. And I think that that, you know, you hear about this, it doesn't matter what market you're in, if you're providing a service, like people are looking for specialized expertise. You know, you often hear the example of like the, if someone has a sniffle, they go to their general practitioner in the medical field. But if they've got a life-threatening, you know, heart problem, they're going to go to the best cardiac surgeon in the country and they're going to get a plane to do so. And so that's the same thing when it comes to legal services as well. And, you know, some of the things that people miss when it comes to niche, they get, they have, they do have a fear of missing out, missing out on an opportunity as a result of getting really narrow, but you know, they never really stop to think like, how many clients do I actually need? Right. Right. I don't have enough clients now. So I think I'm going to keep all my options open. Whereas if I narrow down, they think they're going to miss out on an opportunity, but, but how many do you actually need? Right. Hmm. I don't think I've ever heard anyone define a potential niche marketplace that wasn't way larger than they could ever possibly serve. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it makes sense. As a result, you know, they're missing out on those great opportunities. And also having a niche to me is about, you know, the strategic decision of what type of work you're going to pursue, you know, actively pursue through your marketing. But as every lawyer knows, like that's not the entirety of of the work you actually do, right? Or even get sent to you. Like mm. there's people, you have other referral sources, people internally send you work. Your expertise typically is broader than your niche and you're getting work through more means than that. It's just a means of of really dialing in and being more strategic about the marketing and business development work you're doing. Hmm. Tell me a little brass tacks, right? Mm-hmm. You're somebody who has been successful maybe your first couple of years in your career. So you have a little bit of experience, but it's still pretty general. What can you do to sort of identify your niche um, and maybe identify the um, what you need and what you don't need? Identify sort of the denominator of people you're reaching out to. What are some sort of ways that you recommend people go about doing that? Yeah, for sure. So in terms of choosing a niche, yeah, I mean, especially if you're really early on in your career, get get super narrow with your decision. I mean, this could be a we call them horizontal and vertical niches. So a vertical might be like an, a particular industry. You know, in the mm. example that I chose, or I, of my example, it was, it was several niches. It was, it was corporate structuring work, so a practice niche for auto dealers, which was a sort of industry niche within metropolitan Detroit. So there's like a geographic niche. So you want to keep, you know, thinking about like these concentric circles or a Venn diagram where you have like three categories of narrowing one's focus down. Um, So how do you do that? I mean, you can look at, you know, what do you have expertise in? Where do you have relationships? You can look out at market opportunity. Like in my case, that was a big part of it was like, all right, who's going to have work or has work that other people aren't paying attention to. So there's that component to it. You know, again, do you have 
Do you have existing relationships? Did you work in this industry before to the point where <laughs> like you have some of those footholds that you could you could develop? An important criterion that I, I think is also um, is I used this term before, but is there an existing ecosystem of attention mm. in which you can immerse yourself? So that would be like, all right, if is there a let's say you want to serve um, you're in Pennsylvania and you want to serve dentists, right? There's a lot of dentists. Dentists tend to have money. They hire lawyers. Like it's a good niche. And is there an ecosystem of attention? So for example, is there a Pennsylvania association of dental professionals? And if there is, like they have a they have an industry conference, they have an industry newsletter, they have opportunities to write articles or network with people. Then you you know you sort of your marketing then falls into place because mm. you don't need to like craft this marketing plan. You just show up within the ecosystem of attention and start mm. developing relationships as a result of that. Like you own that space. You're not someone who comes in and sort of dabbles and tries to network and get clients because you're being consistent because you keep cultivating that niche practice for yourself. You start to be seen as like the trusted insider within the mm. group, right? That just like I was able to. And I pretty, in, pretty quickly immersed myself as a trusted insider among the auto dealers in Michigan because I kept showing up and I was giving away right. my ideas for free. And that, I think that really helps in terms of defining your niche. And then once you do that, like, I mean, just in terms of tactical advice, the way I think about it is the following. Like, I think that oftentimes when it comes to marketing, we make things difficult on ourselves. Like, I think as lawyers, we have this belief that, if it doesn't, if it's not hard, like it's not worthwhile. <laughs> so true. When it comes to marketing, like do something you enjoy and that comes easy to you. Like I am a, I'm a raging introvert. I hate networking events. I don't want to go to conferences and do public speaking. I've done all that stuff before, but I was making it really hard on myself. So now I just post on LinkedIn and I hmm. have a podcast. It's not the only thing I do, but mostly I just post on LinkedIn. And that's enough, right? I mean, again, and I think that the same goes for uh, whether it be posting on LinkedIn or maybe you're the raging extrovert that likes to go network or public speak, but choose your thing, choose the thing that you enjoy doing. And, and you don't need to do everything from a marketing standpoint. Just do one thing, maybe two things and do it well. Marketing is, is like the term athletics, right? Or sports. It means many different things. There's many things that fall underneath that mm. umbrella. And there's not, you know, if someone's a great swimmer, it doesn't mean they're a great basketball player. They shouldn't try to do both necessarily if they want to become great at one thing. And the same goes for marketing. It's many different things. Choose mm. the thing that you, you like, that you enjoy, that you can develop a, a, a skill at and do more of that. And then that's marketing. So that's sort of how to figure out how to communicate one to many to your niche audience. Mm. And then business development is a, a very similar concept. It's interrelated to to marketing, but it's different in, in the sense that it's communicating one-to-one, -one, right? It's about how do I cultivate these close relationships? I'm doing all this marketing. As a result of that, I'm gaining awareness and trust with an audience. And then I have this core number of people who I'm engaging in business development with. So that one-to-one -one mm -hmm. relationship. My, my tactical advice there is make a list, put 20 people on that list. Every business day in a month, that's around 20 business days a month. Like, reach out to one person on that list. As a result of that, every month you'll get through your entire business development hmm. list. Everyone, before they build a practice, they think, I need to grow my network. I need to grow my network. I need to be in front of lots of people. And then once everyone builds a practice and they look back, they realize, 
it's really just like five to 10 people that really matter in hmm. terms of sending you work and like really thinking of you. And it's the 80-20 rule of, of business development. It's like you don't need that many clients or that many referral sources. It's like you just need your whatever, the Kevin Kelly term, the thousand true fans. But in this case, that you're 20 really good contacts hmm. from a business development standpoint. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, and it's so true. I've seen this in the sort of like law school mentorship role. Also, people think they need to go out and find a hundred mentors. And the reality is if you go, if you reach out to a hundred people, right, you need to make your denominator big enough to find the right people. Mm -hmm. But once you do, you're going to find the one or two that are really important. I had Brian Potts on the podcast, who's writing in this space also. And, you know, one of the things he said is assume you're going to get a 1% hit rate. That's like a common sales hit rate. So for every hundred letters you send out, one person is going to get back to you. If five people get back to you, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And then, but once you have that person, right, you have to keep in touch with them. You have to build it. But your version of networking sounds a lot better than sometimes what I hear when I think of networking, my, you know, my own past privilege, really bad wine really awkward conversations with people you don't really want to talk to and really low hit rate of people that are going to help you. So those are really, really helpful pieces of advice. Yeah. And then I think the other misconception, um, and this, this really, this happens, I see this all the time and it is a big mistake in my opinion, at least. And, and people will disagree with this. It's maybe a little bit contrarian, but what I think, what I experienced and, and I feel like what I've observed is the fact that you don't need to think in terms of like developing the really close, like friendly relationship with someone before they become a client. Like the relationship is the reward for like providing value to yeah. someone. It's what comes after you start the client relationship in, in most cases, oh, oh, if, if at all, right? You don't need that. What clients are looking for is someone who's going to like, especially from their lawyer, like do an amazing job for them, right? Just like, be kicking, you know, kicking ass on their behalf. That's what mm -hmm. they're looking for. And, you know, if you're lucky, if you click, like you, be, you can become really close to that, that person. But if that's what you set out to do, like you're putting the cart before the horse. <laughs> and I think, you know, what you need to do is, is really, you know, spend most of your time um, trying to just establish that you're the right expert for the job and building trust that way. There's a concept in marketing sort of called the like the 595 rule where it's like all right, 5% of any marketplace are going to be actively in the market looking for, you know, a service provider at any one point in time and you need to like find those people and and get them into a marketing funnel and like, you know, to the point where and then put on the hard sell and like they'll buy whatever you're selling. I, I was reading an article the other day that put flipped that on its head and it sort of articulated exactly kind of what I've, I've always believed, which is you need to really be marketing to the 95, not the five, right? Because hmm. you're not going to change anyone's mind, especially when it comes to like hiring a lawyer. If they've already got their needs met, like you're not going to displace someone in the moment by something you say or some sales pitch you put on. What you need to do is continually show up and be top of mind and, and slowly and incrementally build trust with that person such that when they do have a need two years from now, they're thinking of you. You're marketing to people when they, or you should be marketing to people when they don't have the need, not trying to market to them when they do have the need. It's like the analogy that the article used was good investors don't try to time the market and good marketers shouldn't try to time their client. So in this case, this would be an example of like, why do you engage in 
why does someone engage in so much content marketing? Like, for example, why do I write so much on LinkedIn? Um, it's because I want to continually be in front of my audience, even if they don't have a need at the moment, because I know at some point in the future they will. And if you're playing hmm. the long game, and I think that every lawyer um, should be playing the long game when it comes to developing clients, you're going to be doing something that's building trust with the audience you're trying to serve constantly and not just in this up and down cycle of like trying to chase work, like when you get slow, you see that a lot too. So that's, that's kind of how I think, um, you know, people should be thinking about it. It's like, play this long game where it's like, you're just continually spending a little bit of time doing marketing and business development every day, rather than like this frenetic up and down episodic intensity of business development that we see a lot of people engage in. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things you talk about, um, I think it's in one of your books, is this idea of sell yourself for an hour every day, mm -hmm. which I think is a really thoughtful, but also really challenging sort of challenge to to most lawyers, especially during busy times. So I guess my question is to just challenge you a little bit on the question of like, when should lawyers start doing this in their career? How do they find that hour? And then how do they spend it to sort of get the best amount out of that hour? Yeah. No, that's a good question. So yeah, just to give a little bit of background. So that, that whole concept of selling yourself an hour every day, this is a concept first articulated by Charlie Munger, who um, people know as Warren Buffett's business partner and, and billionaire investor. Um, and what fewer people know or, or realize these days is that he's also um, a lawyer. Um, he co-founded Munger Tolls and uh, was a very well-renowned lawyer back in the day. As a young lawyer, before he started his own firm, uh, he was working at another one. And the realization he came to was that he was spending all of his time billing hours for clients. And as a result, he was never you know, getting to what he saw as his own important priorities. So he kind of changed his mindset and said, you know, if I'm ever going to get ahead, ever going to you know, serve my priorities and not just someone else's, um, I got to start seeing myself as my own most important client. And hmm. as he put it, selling myself an hour of my time every day. Now, Munger used that hour a day, first thing in the morning, sort of before whatever craziness began um, <laughs> in a, at a law firm back in the early 1950s, obviously with no emails and voicemails and people, you know, trying to chase you down. But nonetheless, he used that time to work on the real estate deals that off, uh, ultimately led him to Warren Buffett. And in any event, I think, though, the sentiment remains, which is, whether it's an hour a day or it's 15 minutes a day or it's five minutes a day, like you need to be thinking about not just not your highest and, and best use is not just serving other people's goals, but thinking about your own long-term vision and what you want out of it and what you need to be doing, what investments you need to be making in, in your own career that are going to help serve that vision and, and make that vision come to life. And for many people, that's building a book of business, right? It's, it's the autonomy that comes from, um, and other benefits that come from having clients of your own, especially if you're going to be in private practice. And it's not going to happen by accident. So yes, you, you, know, you have a lot on your plate. You always will. There'll never be enough time to do everything. But I think if with, with some rethinking of priorities, maybe some better personal productivity practices, most people can find that they can fit 15 or 30 minutes. And, and, and once you start putting, spending 15 or 30 minutes doing something that starts bearing fruit, yeah, maybe up to an hour a day, right. um, every day. We all know 
There's this great term, I've heard Adam Grant use it, called idiosyncrasy credits, which is um, you know, the idea that within every organization, there's people who you know, provide so much value that they can sort of work outside the lines of the, of the rules. Mm. And I know lawyers like this at big firms across the country. Some of them have been coaching clients, you know, huge books of business. Firms have, you know, say, a, a minimum billable hour requirement of partners of like 1,500 hours. They're barely billing like 300 hours a year, right? They, if they're billing more than 300 hours a year, they see it as a big problem. They're not doing their job right. And they're, you know, other people in the firm think they're not doing their job right because they're adding so much value by keeping other people busy. Every firm mm. needs these people. It's like, are you, when it comes down to it, is that what you want? Or, you know, some people, it's not, that's not for them, but there's a path forward, but it only comes by starting to figure out how to invest that time in yourself. I mean, the other way to talk about it, if it's, if sell yourself an hour of your time every day doesn't work for you, like think about the advice you're getting from your financial advisor to pay yourself first, right? Like hmm. that money goes right to your 401k account, not to your bank account. So you don't spend it. Like pay yourself first with your time. Hmm. If you'd like that, turn a phrase better. Sure. It makes a ton of sense. Um, mm -hmm. You know, most of the listeners, I think, I mean, podcasting, as you know, is a horrible uh, tool in terms of figuring out who your audience is, but I'm pretty confident, mm -hmm. you know, my audience tends to be law students through, say, people in their first 10 years of practice. Mm -hmm. If there are other audiences out there, I'm also, I'm also there for you. I'll try to be something to everybody, not to follow Jay's advice. But what are the kinds of things that if you, if this is completely foreign to you, you know mm -hmm. nothing about building a book of business, you're not like Jay and Jonah who like to sort of, you know, read all these thinkers on the side because we think it's fun. What are the three things that you'd recommend to somebody who's just in their first couple of years of practice that they can use during that 15 or 30 minutes they're selling to themselves? I mean, you mentioned sort of relationship building and checking in with people. What else? Yeah, I would say, you know, I'm a big fan, especially right now when there's not as much other ways to connect with people. I am a big fan of like getting on and building uh, your own personal platform on LinkedIn, meaning growing your network, starting to understand how to create and share content. Like it's a very powerful thing to have the ability to reach, you know, an audience and and share your ideas with them. And not just necessarily that you're going to be generating client work as a result of what you're doing on LinkedIn today. The whole point is, you know, four years from now, you've got an asset that you can tap and you're not starting from from scratch, so to speak. So that that certainly would be something. At the end of the day, like the thing that you're going to learn, you're going to really learn a lot of lessons by like figuring out who in your firm, you know, really gets this hmm. and spending time like a sponge with that person. Like that would probably be my number one recommendation to the extent you're at a firm where that sort of mentorship exists. But hmm. like there's not only are you going to, um, you know, learn a lot, but you're going to position yourself to be working with that person. That, that can be really valuable. So I would say that would be another, another thing that I would recommend in terms of just like getting out there and, and, you know, building the assets that are going to help serve you later from a business development standpoint. And then, you know, spending time networking with those who are at a similar level of experience who are in like sort of adjacent positions. So, you know, it might be someone who in the, in the management consulting world or investment bankers or whatever. Like, again, you're not in a position right now where you're going to be able to go after big cases and big matters. Like you're not, you're not at that point in your career yet if you're maybe in the first, second or third year of, of the practice of law, but you will be. And you're, those colleagues, whoever, no one else is paying attention to either, 
are going to be as well. And they're going to be in a position to send you work and you send them work. And that's how these things work. So you're either going to have to do that later. Like if you want to continue in private practice and make partner and you're going to wake up one day and say like, oh crap, I should have, I should have done all of this earlier. Right. I mean, if I only, if I had started three years ago, well, you know, now is the time, like figure out how do I spend 20 minutes a day and start Hmm. doing some of these work and it really are, you're planting seeds that will bear tremendous fruit later. Right. And as I think I said earlier, right, I, I hear you saying you, you might not be able to increase your numerator of success, but you can increase your denominator of seeds out in the world. You know, I had Karen Vladek on sort of the middle of last year, and she said, was talking about how one of her biggest clients that she ever brought in in private practice was someone she played tennis with. And the main reason she played tennis with this person was not to build a client relationship. It was because she enjoys playing tennis. Yeah. The partner that I did a ton of work for when I was in private practice, biggest client came from someone he met through his kid's school. Like it's, Mm -hmm. you know, you can do all of these things, but maybe just being out in the world and being a human being is, is one of those things. Don't, don't do what a lot of young lawyers do, which is just hide in your office and bill hours because that's, that's going to be a challenge later on, no matter what you want to do. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Yeah. So much of building a practice. Yeah. We want to attribute it to like all the smart things we do, but yeah, it is. There's a, there's definitely an an element of serendipity to it. I mean, Mm -hmm. my biggest client and continues to be the biggest client because my, my partner, I transitioned firm to my partner when I ended up leaving. He's he's still the biggest part or biggest client of the firm. And he was the son of my middle school gym teacher. And like, Hmm. we just bumped into each other. And that was how that connection started. And, um, but it was, I think we were at like a, I I decided to go to like a tiger game in Detroit one night at an event that someone put on. I didn't feel like doing it, but yeah, bumped into each other and the rest is history. Hmm. That's amazing. You know, one of the other things that, that you write a little bit about on LinkedIn and talk about is sort of how younger lawyers especially sort of associates at big law firms, which is another sort of niche of my audience, can kind of stand out internally and also sort of externally. And I guess I'd be curious if you could just sort of give your your summary of some of the things that you recommend to those sort of junior associates to be successful. Yeah, I think that, you know, just from a a work standpoint, you know, if we were to set aside the whole idea of like personal branding and marketing type stuff for the moment, but um work standpoint, I mean, I think that, you know, there's nothing that whoever's supervising you and other, you know, more senior people in the firm value more than like a young associate who, who really just takes complete ownership of hmm. projects. I, I think that young lawyers, oh, you know, they, they totally underestimate, you know, how much of a breath of fresh air it is for a, a supervising lawyer when you just get it and you get it done and you get it done when you say you're going to get it done. And like all of these things that, that seem fairly obvious that are, are very rare in many respects. And so like to the extent that you can be someone that's seen as, as someone who really takes ownership, like, ask the right questions, like gets the information, hits the deadline to the extent there's an issue, like communicates that, that really makes people stand out. And, and that's enough to become you know, sort of in the upper tier of high-performing associates in any firm, I feel like. And I also say from an early stage, like to the extent you have, you have ambitions for like partnership someday, part of that is being perceived as a leader within the firm. And I think sometimes as young associates, you feel like you're so far from having that ownership mindset, that that leadership mindset. It's, it seems such a, like a distant thing that 
you know, you don't look for opportunities to assume leadership roles, whether that be figuring out how to work with other attorneys in the firm, paralegals you might be working with, committees that you could be serving on, like things like that, where you're, you're starting to assume leadership roles to the extent possible within your firm. Because at the end of the day, you know, becoming partner very much is a matter of having other partners in the firm start to perceive you as one before you become one, right? Mm. It's sort of like the whole idea of you got to become the thing that you want to become. And, and, and in, in a real sense, people need to perceive you as that thing before they can, they, they'll, they'll ultimately, you know, elect you into their partnership. So hmm. um, I think ownership of, of projects and assuming leadership roles where possible are two things that, that will make you stand out in a positive way. And then, you know, the way I like to think, and, and this is closely related, but, um, you know, you're, you're in a position at a big law firm where it's, again, it is very much still, you know, sort of keep your head down and do good work mentality. Sure. And in a real sense, like one of the great things about being in a big law firm is you actually don't need to have your own book of business to get elected partner. Like I know, you know, a lot of the partners I work with from a coaching standpoint at big firms who've just made partner don't have any clients. It's like they have the, they have, they've demonstrated the capacity and the aptitude for building a practice, but they don't have one yet. But nonetheless, the kinds of things you do want to do is like develop really strong relationships, develop your reputation, develop some of these leadership skills, that kind of thing. So instead of thinking about acting like an entrepreneur outside the firm, think about acting like an entrepreneur you know, within hmm. the firm. Like again, team up and try to collaborate with partners to write articles for publication, take the lead on various initiatives, um, try, to, try to pitch in and help with the next proposal and see if you can attend the pitch meeting, get on those committees, like do all these things, inter meet people in other offices, set up hmm. coffees with people virtually um, across practice groups. All of these things where you can sort of work and network and get to know people and build your reputation internally as an entrepreneur will be very, very valuable for you. And I think is, is a good idea for any associate. Hmm. That's great. I mean, it's, I always fear I had, as I said, I was talking to a friend of mine who's sort of in this 10 years out, done great work, but has no idea how to build a book of business because that's not what he's been trained to do for the last 10 years. But re rethinking who your audience is and who your goals are in that moment sounds like a really powerful piece. Now, I was going to ask you, are there dangers of standing out externally, right? I think some lawyers see fear in using, whether it's Twitter or LinkedIn or their blog or whatever, that they're seen as like that guy putting out nothing that you or I would put out on social media, of course, but like that trite, unnecessary addition pieces when they should just be billing. Like, how do you coach people in terms of like how to deal with that tension. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's ever a bad idea. I mean, to the extent that you're working for someone and you have that gut instinct that maybe this would be taken the wrong way. I mean, I, I've heard stories where people, because someone, someone all of a sudden starts posting on LinkedIn and a superior approaches them because they think they're doing it because they're looking for a new job or something like mm. that. I don't think it ever hurts to communicate and say like, hey, I want to make sure I'm staying within whatever guardrails exist and I don't think you should be like running every post by someone, but I don't think it's a bad idea to communicate <laughs> because I can tell you this, having worked with a number of firms, big ones, small ones, um, among even among the biggest ones, they have very different policies regarding totally. this. There are, there are firms that I know of that you do literally have to run every post that you would po possibly want to put on LinkedIn through some filtering process. 
and conflicts checks and all of this stuff. It's like, forget it. No one does it. Other firms, there are no filters. There's no checks and balances and people can post whatever they want. So it's important to kind of understand what the dynamic hmm. is, not only from a firm-wide policy standpoint, but like who you're working for directly. I think it's always a good idea to over-communicate sometimes in these areas because there can be misunderstandings. But in my experience, I think a lot of times we fear something that doesn't actually exist. Like hmm. we we think that we think that there's someone that's not going to want us to do something, but um, that we're just maybe using that as a limiting belief as to because we really don't. We're f- sort of afraid of doing it ourselves. Right. So it's easier for someone else to say no than for us to say mm-hmm. no to ourselves. That makes a ton of sense. And it sounds yeah. like if, if you're one of those firms that makes everybody run everything by you, um, I can say it, it's my podcast, like welcome to the 21st century, build an audience. It will be, <laughs> it will be, a, there's a business case for it. And I don't need to show you numbers to know that it exists. Um, look, yeah. Jay, this has been so fantastic. I just want to ask you one last question, which is for law students and sort of the brand new lawyers or people currently in law school one of the things that you talk a lot about is your sort of your personal brand and how you fit into the world. For someone who's super new to our profession, what do you recommend that they do in order to make sure that they're seen positively in this sort of very challenging age in which we find ourselves, this internet age where you're constantly selling yourself? What's the sort of one thing that you'd recommend to those newest in our profession? Yeah. I mean, this is going to kind of run counter to a lot of the other stuff we've been talking about, about like your brand and you want to make sure you're out there and you're, you're visible and you're top of mind with people. I mean, if you're just getting started, it really does boil down to like, forget everything else, but just like get your feet underneath you and, and do good work. And Mm. I know that sounds trite and like a cliche, but it really does matter. I mean, it's like getting off to a good start in anything you're not losing out. You're not missing out on what's happening online. Like just try to do really good work. And let's say this is, you know, your first six to 12 months of practice. Yeah. Like if you can do really good work and impress people internally and externally to the extent, you know, you're working with opposing counsel or co-counsel, that's going to go so far for you. And and it's going to give you so much confidence. You're going to be able to step out much more confidently into the external world and like understand how, Things like personal branding and marketing and relationship building online, all these things fit in if you feel like you've got, you know, that piece handled where you're like, you're doing great work, you're you're impressing people. I think that's I think that's the biggest key. And I would say that would be where someone should focus and 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 worry about you got plenty of time. Don't wait forever, but you've got time to work on some of this other stuff later. Couldn't agree more. It makes so much sense. Look, Jay, it's been awesome chatting with you. Um, if people want to learn more about you and what you write about, where are the best places uh, to find you? Probably find me on LinkedIn. That's kind of where you'll see a little bit of everything. But uh, if you want to, you'll see that I write for Attorney at Work. I write for Law.com. I have a podcast called the Thought Leadership Project Podcast. So, um, and then I've written a few books. Uh, so if you want to check me out, those are those are some ways to to find me. All that information you can find through my LinkedIn though. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jay, for doing this. I really appreciate it. And uh, for all the listeners who've been asking me to uh, do do an episode talking about business development, not sure I could have uh, asked for a better guest. So thanks for being here, Jay. Thank you, Jonah. It was a real pleasure. Again, I am Jonah Perlin, and this is the How I Lawyer podcast. Thanks to podcast sponsor Law Pods for their expert editing. If you're a lawyer considering starting your own podcast, definitely check them out at lawpods.com. And thanks to you for listening. 
If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you'll consider sharing it with friends and colleagues or on social media. And of course, if you haven't already done so, please sign up for the email list at howilawyer.com or subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, if you have comments, suggestions, or ideas for the show, please reach out to me at howilawyer at gmail.com or at Jonah Perlin on Twitter. Thanks again for listening and have a great week. 